Hello, my name's Frank and I'm the host of the UFO Thinker podcast. I'd always been mildly interested in UFOs, but like many people, the events of 2017 ignited a fire of curiosity for the UFO topic, which has been raging ever since. I wanted to start a podcast, but initially thought, well, I'm not an astrophysicist, I'm not a fighter pilot, and I've never even seen a UFO. I'm just a normal guy who's interested in this mystery. But that's when a light bulb went off. There are so many other people just like me who are fascinated with this stuff. So why not start a podcast to talk about it from the ordinary guy's perspective? All the BS stripped away, as a few people have said. And let's see if we can get to the truth in all of this. Thanks to everyone who's been on board with the journey so far. It's been amazing to see so many listeners tuning in. And if you're new here, welcome. You can now support the podcast on Patreon with tiers starting from £3 per month. The podcast will always be 100% free, but supporting the show in this way allows me to devote more time and make the show bigger and better. Higher tiers also include special benefits such as being able to suggest episode topics and get merchandise. And I really truly appreciate every listener whether you support on Patreon or not. So now with all of that said, let's get into today's episode. Okay, so I'd like to welcome to the show today the one, the only US Air Force veteran, co-host of Calling All Beans, aviation extraordinaire, cabby coordinator, the man, the myth, the legend, DJ. How are you doing, sir? My man, the UFO <laughs> Frank, what's going on, brother? <laughs> Doing pretty good. I had to attempt to give you a bit of a epic introduction there after the intro that you gave me recently. You are the the uh, the guy who's famed for your intros, so I had to do a little bit of that for you there. Thank you. You're <laughs> going to be on again, baby. We're going to have you. We're going to have Vincenzo. We got to get all kinds of British up in that joint. <laughs> yes, sounds good. Yeah, anytime, man. Give me a shout. So, joking aside. I know you as the co-host of the excellent Colin Orbean show, uh, experienced pilot and all-round diamond geezer. But uh, for the listeners, could you just give us a little bit of background on yourself, please, and uh, what got you interested in the UFO topic? Um, I, I like to call myself the special eds kid that made it to special ops. That sort of when people started inviting me on shows, which it, uh, was a long time in in the making, I had to say, well, how do I define myself? Well, you know, I was a special ed kid in uh, middle school and high school. And I've told people, if you're one of those kids or a parent of one of those kids, please reach out to me because uh, I'd like to talk to you um, about that. Um, and um, real quickly, uh, I, you know, got sort of my start through sports, got a lot of confidence through uh, the end of high school, senior year through that, through wrestling ended up going to college to play football, even though I had never played football in my life, uh, made the team, uh, even played semi-pro football after that for a little bit. And then that inspired me to get my pilot's license, join the Air Force, all that stuff. Um, I was a flight engineer in the Air Force, a um, little bit different than how the RAF does it because uh, I spent about eight years maintaining aircraft. And then when I got um, this flying job, you sit in between the pilot and the co-pilot 
you run systems, you do calculations, and you back up the pilots, the navigator, and we had an electronic warfare officer also. So we had a five-person flight deck, if you could imagine that. And then two gentlemen uh, or ladies in the back as the loadmasters that would interact with uh, special operator types. So uh, once I got that job, I was off and running on flight engineer and and learning how to interact with special operation forces from even the, you know, uh, uh, the, the uh, Royal uh, SAS type guys um, and uh, what's that special SBS special boat team type guys and so on and so forth. We worked with mostly American, but also uh, joint services. Um, so I flew uh, combat talons for six or seven years, which was a low-level infoxful um, air re, um, resupply platform. And then I did about a year of on uh, AC-130 gunships as a flight engineer before um, I retired. So, uh, so that kind of got me into it. And I did have a sighting at about fourteen, and was always fascinated with the phenomenon. But it was Dave Fravor coming out on Joe Rogan, talking about it, that I was doing, I've been podcasting since uh, 2009, maybe 2010, something wow. like that. Good long time. And uh, about MMA. And when I heard Dave Fravor came out and I was on the air with my two MMA co-hosts, I said, hey guys, you know, I've had an experience. And I'm like, what? <laughs> and um, that was the first time my wife didn't even know that I had an experience, uh, which was not prolific, but, um, but anyway, that's, uh, that's, uh, how I, how I got into it and, uh, decided, you know what guys, it's been great about you, about MMA, but I'm turning that off and I'm going to talk about the phenomenon. And just like you, you and I've had protracted conversations where you find that it's fascinating. It's never ending to be able to postulate, speculate, uh, analyze, which is what I consider myself as, as an analyst rather than a researcher about this topic. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's interesting. You say about the, uh, the, the Fravor coming out as kind of a catalyst to really kind of kick things off for you in the topic. There's, it's probably a, a lot of that went on with different people as well. Funnily enough, I was talking to uh, one of my listeners, um, who's been listening from the beginning, uh, John junior. And he was, he was telling me that, um, he'd been kind of waiting for that moment when a, a, a pilot, especially a, a, a respected pilot like Fravor, um, you know, with all the experience and everything like that, you know, kind of came out and, um, you know, laid his cards on the table sort of thing, you know, and, um, John Jr. was actually in the, uh, on, on the ships as well in the Navy. And, and from his mm -hmm. point of view, that was a massive catalyst for him. You think we'll see even more of that kind of thing as we go through the years of, of more people, um, you know, getting involved from, from military backgrounds. I do think, I do think you'll see more. I actually got, I did one episode that Nathan called the flight episode and it was at his behest. And we had a Colonel, a retired Colonel who did a lot of, he not only flew with me on combat talents, but he did a lot of work, uh, with joint special operations command, JSOC. Um, and somebody I regard and he came on the show with Chris Leto and we did a show with the three of us. So I was basically out of the interview chair in the panelist chair and he was telling stories about us flying. You know, I got about 4,000 hours flying a lot of hours on MVGs. Um, Chris has got, Chris has got a lot of hours flying. So he wanted to hear, you know, sort of how, how our, how we do it in, in special ops compared to how they do it in the fighter world, which is 
two completely different things. Two, you know, Fravor, Chris Leto, same team, same group. Not, I mean, we're all on the same team, but same specialization, same skill sets. Us in the low level community, if we're above a thousand feet above the ground, we're getting a nosebleed. You know, we're, <laughs> we're 250 feet to a thousand feet. That's where we live. I mean, that's where we make our money. Um, so totally different type of flying than guys that are patrolling up at 25, 35,000 feet, identifying threats and killing them. Um, we're dropping off special operations guys that will kill that threat. So it's different, different. Uh, so, uh, so anyway, um, that's, that's, uh, uh, how, how I, uh, that's sort of my experience with it. Yeah. It's, it's, it's really fascinating to talk to people like yourself and I've spoken to Chris as well. Um, just to have that, you know, as somebody who's been in an aircraft flying through the skies and stuff, you have that different perspective, you know, to things like a Tic Tac and you can relate to Fravor's experiences, um, you know, in, in a different way, perhaps to somebody who's, you know, never, never been in that situation. I always remember when I was a kid, I actually always kind of wanted to be a pilot, um, but it didn't really work. I, do, I didn't have the... Um, the, uh, the the sort of like physical <laughs> characteristics to do it because I've got pretty bad eyesight and uh, when I looked in, into it at the time, it, you know, certain if you if you have uh, certain conditions with your eyesight, you can't really get involved. And more to the point, I have pretty horrendous motion sickness. So mm-hmm. even if I'm driving in somebody else's car, I'll I'll start feeling like I'm going to be sick. So I don't think G forces and all that sort of stuff would have been any good for me. <laughs> but but like I say, it's really interesting to you know to get that that viewpoint um, of of people like yourself. So whilst working uh, with the Air Force, did you um, did you ever see anything yourself from from the uh, the planes in terms of UFOs? I didn't, but even before I answer that, I just want to say that um, I want to say to everybody out there, this show is is amazing, Frank. You, it's uh, you have a a very unique way, and I think you're going to just uh, keep going and progressing and getting bigger and bigger because people can find a trust in the way that you analyze things, the way you ask questions, and the way you take in information. And for me personally, I just want to say for everybody, I'm really gra- glad that we've become friends. Uh, and it's an honor to be on with you uh, and be your friend. Oh, thank you very much, man. It's a it's a it's an honor to have you on the show as well. Thank you again. <laughs> yes, sir. Uh, and secondly, so um, I'm sorry, I have to remember what your question is. Oh, so I haven't seen anything while flying. I did get with a colleague, who ironically, this gentleman, uh, he was a satellite operator after he retired from the Air Force, and. They, I don't know what the capabilities of his satellites are, but I would, I would venture a guess that they probably could see something if it were there, but all he can talk to me about was his experience flying. And he said that, uh, one of the times we were in Afghanistan, he's flying, he was flying an aircraft called the combat shadow. I was flying the combat talent too. And he did have a sighting of an object that came across the windscreen from right to left, like in front of the co-pilot towards the pilot, and then went straight up. And there's just nothing um, in the world that can that can make those type of maneuvers. Uh, this was relatively high altitude transiting base to base in Afghanistan, which you want to get high enough to get out of the threat envelope until you ingress to the uh, objective area. And uh, he saw one. But as far as that, it's not being talked about in the Air Force. I, you know, I got to level with you on that. Hmm. Yeah, what what's the kind of like um, 
is there a sort of procedure that you have to go through where somebody says, you know, if you do see anything, you know, don't talk about it or anything like that, or is it is it just a case of, you know, more of a because of the stigma, it does it doesn't really get mentioned if if somebody does see something. There, uh, I, there is certainly is a cultural bias against it. I would say um, it's not the focus. It's not talked about. It's not briefed. Um, I have seen through my job, some reporting procedures that are out there for people uh, to report them. But um, culturally, it's not something that I have heard discussed ever um, in my interactions with the Air Force then or now. So I can explain. And if, if you want me to get into the whys, I'll get into that. But I don't want to I don't want to run your show. Yeah, go for it, man. Let's hear the whys. So first of all, as I said the other night when we were on with Quantum Witch, we were on with uh, Priscilla the other night, the Quantum Witch Cafe, and I explained that for me, you, UFO Twitter, all the people that we know and love, Frank, we don't want to be lied to. We don't want to be uh, deceived and told that something didn't happen that happened or given a really BS story as to why something happened. I feel the exact same as everybody else out there who has never had any connection to the Air Force. Full mm. stop. I don't like it. I don't agree with it. And it pisses me off. Now, having said that, I, as a human being, have to put myself in the position of someone who makes that decision as to what we're going to share with the public about UFOs. And I told them about CQ Brown. CQ Brown is the new chief of staff of the Air Force. Uh, I'm very happy to celebrate that he's the first uh, black man uh, that that we've ever had, African American, that uh, has been chief of st- uh, to be chief of staff of the Air Force. He came amid uh, at couldn't have been any better timing when the the, the he was chief of staff uh, just announced right before George Floyd was killed. Um, and he talked about his experiences. So I'm going to assume that CQ Brown has some progressive nature inside him, having him talked about in very minor details, some experiences that he's had. And even he hasn't come out and said, Hey guys, you know what? There's a phenomenon out there that's in our skies that we really have no control over. And if I ask you, Frank, why do you think he did that? And, you know, I'm not going to ask you to answer a question that's really rhetorical in nature. The reason is, is because if I ask you what your job is, your job is to teach people to play music. Mm-hmm. When you go to their home, my objective is to turn this young person or older person from a person that doesn't know how to play music into a person that does know how to play music and understands the concepts behind it. That's what I'm charged to do. I'm not charged to go talk about politics. I'm not charged to go talk about football. I'm not charged to go talk about what kind of beer I like best. All these things. You have a mission when you go there. The chief of the staff of the Air Force is responsible to the National Command Authority. So we're talking about the president, the SecDef, and the Joint Chiefs of Staff. That's the National Command Authority, okay? The two civilians and then the Joint Chiefs. And he, they have a mission statement of what they're supposed to provide to the National Command Authority. I, as the Chief of the Air Force, am providing you X. 
and what people have to understand. And we can say, I don't like this and I don't agree with this, which is totally different than saying, I understand this and why this is this way. My job is to protect the skies over the United States and to assert air dominance over the United States, air superiority, and project global, project air power globally, that we can project that and within certain metrics that they've outlined them for him. Yes, sir, we can meet that commitment. And, and if I'm talking to the president or anyone in the National Command Authority, it's not to say, you know, Frank, we got to share some stuff with UFO Twitter because these guys feel really bad <laughs> that they don't know what we know. And we owe it to them to tell them. As much as I would like that to happen because I want to know, even though I know that if it were out on every major news network, I wouldn't be able to buy toilet paper for two months uh, or hand gel or whatever, the Clorox sheets or whatever the hell people are going and scouring the dollar store for. Um, that's what would happen if they came out and, and on every major news network, including BBC, CNN UK, uh, CNN uh, International, et cetera, they came across and said, Chief of Staff of the Air Force says that we have X, Y, Z. We know E, D, F. That's, that doesn't serve his mission of promoting peace, keeping the peace, and asserting his dominance over the eyes. Is that the mission of the United States Navy? The answer is no. That's not there. They're projecting air power by use of the sea, right? I can put an air base 12 miles off the coast of your country in international waters, whomever you are, I can do that as the United States Navy. That's not the Air Force's job. The Air Force's job is to say, we have the power. We are protecting you. These skies belong to us. And whether it's in 1947 or now, same mission. Mm. Yeah, I, I hear what you're saying. I mean, the 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 there's the man who's in charge of the air of the air force in that in that capacity has basically got a specific role, and that role doesn't include offering up some some new information for UFO Twitter. Um, Unfortunately, yeah, yeah. Well, it'd be nice to to hear a few uh, a few bits, but like you say, it's a very a very complex thing, isn't it? You can't just go right. I've got the job now, so here's all the information, everybody, because as you say, chaos would ensue quite possibly. Balance. What I'm talking about here, Frank, is maybe we could get from where we are now, where we're here, we want some information, the information we're getting from them is down here near zero. Maybe we could get to here. Maybe mm. we could come find a little bit of balance and get some information. Now, if I were on the other side, I could say, well, the NDAA basically is that. That's acknowledgement. That's what the NDAA is. It's an acknowledgement. This is real. We're studying it. We want to create an office to collect it. We want the DIA to organize this and funnel information through them. That's admission. But as far as the Air Force, it's not in their interest to. Yeah, I think that's a, it's a really good point, actually, the, the the balance thing. Because I think sometimes people see disclosure, you know, the, the term disclosure. People see that as a case of one day all the books get opened up and everybody gets access to everything. And that is never going to happen, is never it? Because happen. like there's going to be so many factors involved that that's just never, never going to actually occur. But um, as you say, the, the balance can definitely be addressed, you know, because there may have been things put into place to keep things really, really tightly under wraps at one point. And it might actually be a case of going, actually, do you know what? Maybe we can loosen up the, the information 
just a little bit more to, to give people the transparency because that's kind of the thing, isn't it? Like the public do want a certain amount of transparency so that they don't feel like information is being kept from them. So mm-hmm. that, that balance may be the best way to actually address that balance is, is the, uh, the NDAA and the, the new office that's been proposed. Eh? Mm-hmm. I think that's, that's the way I, I don't envision the chief of staff of the air force or one of his underlings, um, uh, you know, and these are guys that I regard and respect because what they're thinking about is what you're looking at on the news and seeing, okay, there's a, there's a potential war happening here. There's a potential war happening there. Uh, you know, there's some machinations, you know, underway in, in these two locations. And how do we pivot from Iraq and Afghanistan to that? Cause that's a completely different thing. That's what's on their mind. Mm-hmm. Not whether or not the Navy is seeing uh, you know, orbs flying around their carrier. Like to the chief of staff of the Air Force is probably like, okay, and I mean it's a threat, but that's not the first thing I've that's like number twenty-five or whatever it is on his list. I have no idea what his list looks like. But you could imagine that his list includes I have I have situations that I have to deal with right now that that are that are on the front the frontal lobe right here. That's what I have to do is to tell the national command authority, yes, we're on this. We're training for this. We're prepared for this. And then there's us going, yeah, man, but <laughs> what about Roswell? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. You know, it's funny. I heard um, uh, Tim McMillan, uh, the founder of the, the debrief and whatnot, um, on uh, that UFO podcast recently. And uh, he, yeah, he, he was saying uh, some, some kind of very similar points to that, really, that uh, and actually, what what Tim said was really interesting. That it may be that in the case of Roswell in particular, whatever it was that was found was just so advanced that you could spend literally the entire U.S. defense budget on it and possibly not even get any further as to figuring out what this thing is. And obviously, then you would have you would have spent all of your allocation of funds on that not got any results from that and then you've got the real world you know adversaries and things like that who are actually plotting things all the time so you have to again it's a balance isn't it you have to focus on the immediate threats whilst also allocating a certain amount of funds um you know to to the unexplained side of things with roswell and whatnot do you think that that could be i just want to point out one thing i think he's saying that metaphorically because you know we've we've i mean if you listen to lazar anybody you know we funneled a bunch of different scientists through this he says that one of the guys that he believes that preceded him on that program at at uh groom lake at area 51 death three air force death three whatever you want to call it try to cut into that um that reactor with a plasma torch and then perished so um i mean when you get to that level where we're trying to cut into it with a plasma torch you know, yeah, I mean, I don't think I agree with them. I don't think we're going to figure it out. And um, I don't care how much money they necessarily spend on it. I don't know that um, you, you, you may have to put it open source and get minds that aren't even in Lockheed Martin or BAE systems or any of these other other uh, 
other companies so yeah that that's the tough the tough part isn't it if something is that advanced like again bob lazar you know obviously depends on on your opinion as to how much stock you put into his his particular story but i mean there's a lot of things about what he says in that regard that make a lot of sense i mean if something was that ad, that much further advanced than where we are you would pretty much just have to lock it away and come back to it in 10 years when science catches up and we've you know able to actually analyze it a bit better i think eric davis has pointed out things like that in the past and do you, do you think um that could be part of the reason for the secrecy just that it's so advanced that it's completely unexplainable and they've got like not much progress in terms of actually figuring out what what it is and they don't want to admit that do you think that's perhaps the reason our our mutual friend frank milburn has talked about this at length um and rick Doty has talked about it and we're gonna we're gonna get him on you know maybe Maybe even for that one, you can come in and ask a couple of questions if you want. Yeah, um, that'd be awesome. Um, but um, I don't think that they've gotten very far in terms of the propulsion system because I think if you did, it would inform the types of vehicles that we're flying and buying right now. For example, you saw it was 62. I think that the, uh, the SR-71 took its first flight. And then I believe it was 1969 when the that uh that consortium of Europeans with the uh, SST the supersonic transport so you saw that there was a direct line from when we were able to create something with skunk works at area 51 and it morphed over onto civilian technology and you saw them flying London to uh, London to New York in two and a half hours or whatever the hell it was three hours I don't even remember what it was something I couldn't afford um <laughs> so so you see those things. Um, you see people like Elon Musk. Uh, you see people like Jeff Bezos that have unlimited budgets. And when you look at that Dragon rocket, does it look a lot different to you than than um, than the Saturn V that they used to go to the moon in '69? Yeah, I see what you're saying. It's, it, it's they're kind it's of the still on the same sort of thing, aren't they? A hundred percent. The only thing mm. they figured out how to do is not waste a solid rocket booster and land it. That's all they've gotten to. And, and that's great, you know, computerization and all that. That's great that he said, I'm not going to waste that booster. I'm going to save that and reuse it. But other than that, it flies exactly the same. If you look at the, people talk, well, look at the stealth fighter. It was at Area 51 for years back in 81, and we didn't see it until the Gulf War. It's like it's an airplane. It flies like the Wright brothers in 1903. Yeah. It has it has a wing that is shaped like in the Bernoulli uh in, in the Bernoulli characteristic of as velocity increases pressure decreases that's the theorem by which we create powered lift and uh powered flight happens more or less. The engine just propels you through the air. It's the wings that create lift and in the case of a helicopter or a drone, it's what we the FAA would refer to well, we call it a helicopter. They call it rotary wing. Because if I took you up to one of those blades and you and I got up on a ladder and we looked and we go, oh, that's shaped exactly like an airplane wing. Yes, it is. It creates its own lift. In, in addition to the fact that we pitch that blade, it also creates lift. Okay. So we haven't advanced past that. So I have to assume that they have not back engineered it to the point where, where uh, we could build one like that or we would probably be flying sorties over Pyongyang right now in that, and they wouldn't be able to touch us. Um, so the question is, the other part of your question was was uh, why I believe you asked of why um, uh, why they don't why they keep it secret. 
Is that yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's basically it. I mean, basically, when you listen to people, I'm not an Intel guy, so I won't come on here and pretend to be uh, a Rick Doty, you know, who was an OSI guy, or a Frank Milburn, or or John, uh, uh, excuse me, John Ramirez. But what I think they would tell you, the guys that are experts, is that if and Lou Elizondo, for that matter, if they know where we're at, then they can make a comparison of where they're at. Right now, they're trying to back engineer whatever they've recovered, and they know where they are, and they would like to know where we are. And this gets into a whole other topic about what is put out in open source intelligence, um, and and I can sort of go into that if you want, where people say, hey, man, I went to a website, and it says the U.S. Navy is trying to patent an anti-gravity technology. Have you heard that before? I have, Yeah. Do you want me to explain that to you? Go ahead, man. Let's do it. <laughs> For UFO Twitter, and I want you to understand this, this is not to make anybody feel bad, but you're not in the industry and therefore it it it's a little transparent. You're understanding why why would they say that? If the United States or any country has secured within its walls, whether it be at Dugway or it be at China Lake or it be at uh Depth 3, you know, Groom Lake, Area 51 or it be at any of the uh, Los Alamos or Kirtland Air Force Base, any of these facilities, you don't need to go and apply for a patent for that technology. Because if you do, it's open source. Anybody can search the U.S. patent website. So the answer, the question is then, why would you do that, Frank? And I think you know the answer. To sort of lead adversaries down a certain path. Ah, that is right, my friend. I call <laughs> it, go. I don't know what they call it in the intelligence community because I'm not in their community, but I'll tell you what I call it. I call it seeding the field. Mm-hmm. If you want plants to grow, you have to seed the field if you want something to grow. So if I throw that out there, US Navy patenting anti-gravity technology, then a Chinese intelligence agent will look at that and say, are they? Probably not. But I have to think about it now and I have to report it as part of OSINT. You know, you talk about Anjali. Anjali was an open source intelligence expert analyzing open source intelligence, which means she would be scouring websites from Kazakhstan to China to see what's out there in open source that we can use. Now, if they say they're developing something, probably don't believe it, but I have to report it and I have, I have to think about it now. But if you have a secret technology, the last thing I'm going to do is go and apply to the U.S. Patent Office, which any one of us can go to their database and see if there's a patent on it, as can all these other nations. So that's why that's a ruse, okay? Um, I don't know what they've done with anti-gravity technology, but I'll tell you my personal opinion. This is complete speculation, but I'm basing this speculation on the fact of what technologies have been actualized in aircraft we're buying and fielding right now. That's what, that's what I'm using as my barometer. And what I will tell you is that if they have actual, if they have produced, let's say, uh, an example of some anti-gravity in a laboratory by whatever means they done, maybe they have, have back engineered something, or maybe they have used a couple of different technologies and made something levitate, for example, and then fall down. There is a chasm the size of the Grand Canyon between seeing that actualized in a laboratory and being able to actualize that in tactical flight against an F-A-18 with a Top Gun pilot at the controls. Hmm. Those are two different gulfs. 
and I and I could get into why, but it would it literally when I talk about flight and and how we fly, how we navigate, how we steer, and all these different things, it would it literally would be another show. But that's why I don't think that they've gotten it to the point where they could put it in an aircraft and have this omnidirectional thrust that can take you up, down, left, right, forty five degree, any 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 angle that's out there from 360 to zero, uh, like these Tic Tacs and some of these other craft do, I don't believe we have a technology, we've developed a technology yet that can do that. If we did, we'd probably be flying it right now over denied territories. Mm. Yeah, I hear what you're saying, that from the the initial actual being able to make something levitate slightly in a lab to actually putting that into a, a finished aircraft that is stable as a platform and all the rest of it could take a long, long time, couldn't it? What What do you think about um, Rick Doty, I think, has mentioned about working craft? And uh, uh, Bob Lazar has certainly said that he's seen working craft. Mm-hmm. One thing that sort of occurred me, uh, to me about that is the, the whole thing of um, element 115 that Bob Lazar talks about. If there is some kind of element like that, which is used in the propulsion system, and maybe if there was uh, an intact craft, or at least a mostly intact craft that was recovered, and that had a little bit of that element within the craft, and you can... You know, if you've got that that element to use as a fuel source, you can operate the craft for a short while, mm-hmm. um, and then eventually they ran out of that, which would explain why they're not using it now. What what, what do you think about that? Do you think that might be a, an explanation for that? I think it's quite possible. I mean, Rick Doty said that one of the ways that they were able to control the craft was by touching those panels and interacting with it. So uh, we don't know if there's a a conscious uh, element to it that you have to connect with the craft, with your consciousness in order to make it come alive because he didn't see any controls or buttons or circuit breakers or indicators. What we would, and I'm not even going to say dial cause that would be absurd, but, but any sort of an indicator light, uh, maybe until they, they touch it. So I think it's, it's possible that, that that's, that that's happened. Um, as far as being able to fly it, um, I could see that I, I don't know if Bob said that they had it chained down. That would kind of lead to a whole nother thing. How do you chain something? Is there little eyelets on there that, that are built that I'm gonna hook up a, a carabiner yeah. and chain it? I but but let's just say that it was restrained in some way. I could see that happening. I would find it very difficult. Me personally, I would find it difficult to believe that we could take a human, get in one of those craft take off and fly somewhere because, and so you might say, well, why do you think that DJ? Well, why do you think, <laughs> so why do you think that DJ? Okay. So now how do we, how do we interact with the navigation system of it? Do they, I mean, we map the earth in hours, minutes, seconds is how we map the earth or we have MGRS coordinates. If you guys have never seen MGRS, you can look that up. And it, it can take you down to, you know, a matter of yards. And so when for air to ground attacks, uh, what you'll see the Army and the Air Forces use are MGRS because you can get down to a much more, you can, you know, let, let's say you're, you know, you have an enemy there and you know the enemy, like a bin Laden type person is hiding in that house. I want to blow up that house, but not the neighbors. So we have to be able to get that measurement down to yards. So we've mapped the earth in, in hours, minutes, seconds coordinates right and and also east west north south meridians 
and, and MGRS. How the hell do we know how they've mapped it? How do we tell it, go to Los Angeles? I mean, I don't, I don't know that we would be able to figure out how to operate their navigation system and fly it. And if we did not hit something, or he said there was a problem with them, they, they went to a location and had trouble uh, slowing it down and stopping, and then therefore they crashed it. So he, he, I think he mentioned that in the interview. If I didn't send you that interview, Frank, I will. But someone did an even better job uh, interview with Rick Doty than I did because they got every possible detail about craft and beings. It was, I, I don't, I would credit the individual right now if I knew his name, but it was a phenomenal interview, and I will share it with you. Um, so that's why I, I don't know that we could do a transcontinental type flight or even in, uh, with, with one of their craft safely without hitting something. Um, it's, it's not, I don't know. I'm not saying it's beyond the realm of possibility, but I would, I would find it pretty difficult. Yes. Yeah, it's, it's a really interesting point, actually. The, the concept of, um, again, especially coming from your point of view, having been in aircrafts and so on, you, you're relying on all of your well, in our aircraft, human aircraft dials and screens and whatnot that tell you your, your airspeed, your altitude, and that's all measured in human, you know, uh, divisions, increments. isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, in- increments. That's the one I was looking for, and um, and and seconds, minutes, miles per hour, airspeed, all the rest of it is all in human increments. So we would just have no way of actually being able to, unless there's some kind of automatic thing that it sort of you know, instantly connects to your consciousness and, and converts it. But again, who knows? But um, yeah, before I forget as well, everyone should definitely check out the uh, the interview that you guys did with, with Rick Doty because it was really interesting and uh, gave me a whole different perspective um, on Rick Doty uh, as a person because obviously there are people who say this and that about him, but I thought you guys did a great job of letting him tell his own story. And uh, yeah, people should definitely check out. That was on uh, Colin Albeans. Uh, with uh, Rick Doty. But um, one thing I really wanted to ask you about, DJ, to get your perspective on it, is is a bit more about the uh, the Tic Tac incident. It's one that I'm quite obsessed with. I know we've spoke about it offline a little bit. So what what's your kind of take on, on what happened that day when Fravor in, intercepted the, the Tic Tac? And uh, what, what stands out to you in particular about that incident? Well, one of the things you said to me that I thought packaged it up perfectly is you said, this is probably the most incredible, the mo- the I, I should say the most credible sighting of all time, because you said, you know, it's captured on radar data uh, and, and the spy one phased array radar is able to see things uh, the size of a softball, so on and so forth up to, you know, at least in the unclassified people are telling us 80,000 feet. It may be beyond that. It's an incredible radar. I don't know of any, anything that can do that personally that I'm just in terms of like the what what we have that we use for air traffic or for defense. Um, then you have the E two Hawkeye crew members uh, that 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 saw it uh, and cataloged it and had their uh, PJ Hughes said that their their drives were taken. Then you had Sean Cahill on a different vessel than Fravor with the big eyes looking at it, and, and Gary I believe also saw it through the big eyes uh, and on the radar. So. Uh, then now you have Alex, Dave, um, Dave Fravor, Alex Dietrich, uh, the other gentleman, uh, Chad Underwood, uh, Jim Slate, the um, the uh, Wizzo. 
So there's all these individuals that saw it and the things that it was able to do, you would think would be easy. But I explained to Frank on there, when Dave dove down at this craft and this craft turned its nose oblong and looked at him, I mean, it was a pants pooping type of a moment for most aviators. And I'm not a fighter pilot, but even Alex, in a moment where she sort of uh, took down the fourth wall for us, said his, his voice was sounded frantic and elevated. Because now Dave's looking at something that's a threat and he has no idea what it is. If it, if that would have been a MiG-29 or a Sukhoi-27 or something, he would have said, okay, I know how to deal with this threat. Or, or a 31. He'd say, I, I understand how to deal with that threat. Now he's looking at something he doesn't know how to deal with. Now as Dave dives down, the tic-tac comes up and they end up in, in, a, uh, in a circle. And one of the things that people don't understand is the worst thing that can happen to you being a fighter pilot is for someone to get at your six o'clock position, to get behind you. If they get behind you, now it opens up every armament on their craft up to and including a 25, 30 or 40 millimeter weapon that they have firing out the front of it. Uh, so they don't even, that could be just line of sight, just pull the trigger. And if they have the right trajectory, man, your, your engines are going away. So what this craft was able to do when it got into a circle with Dave was to figure out his rate of turn and his orbit and his velocity to, well, basically his rate of turn and his velocity to calculate what the orbit was. So that way it could remain 180 degrees across the circle from Dave. For another fighter to do that would be very difficult. They would either have to speed up, slow down to make sure that Dave didn't get behind them. And that circle would probably get bigger and bigger as guys are throttling up, not trying to get behind one another. So what did Dave do? Dave said, this thing has figured out how to stay 180 degrees away from me. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come across the radius of that circle and point the nose of my aircraft with incredible bravery because he had no weapons aboard. So basically you're saying, I'll hit you like physically with my craft. So when people talk about the ridiculousness that, that the U.S. government or the Air Force set up this test, they don't realize how dumb that sounds because that was headed towards a Class A accident where Dave could have hit that craft and if he's lucky, could eject and probably not. You know, when they eject is usually when they get a tail shot or a wing shot or a side shot and they're able to then eject and, and fall safely to the water and, and get rescued by rotary wing. In this case, you hit something head on with one of those fighters, you're done, man. You mm. are done. Um, so incredible bravery on Dave's, on Dave's part. And the U.S. Air Force or any government agency <clears throat> would never set up a test like that where there could be a Class A or a Class B accident. You can look those up and what that means on the internet. But basically, Class A, somebody died or it reached a certain dollar value of damage. Mm. That is something that you do at China Lake, at Groom Lake, at Dugway, at any of these bases that have huge test ranges. That's where you do those tests. You bring the craft out. You bring the fighters, fighter aircraft out. You read everybody into the program. You have start and end points, cap points, right? Mm -hmm. Like the cap point, and say these are we're going to run these tests and see see what happens between these two craft. You don't just turn up in their in their training area and say, oh, we'll see what happens. If he dies, he dies. 
we'll tell the Navy, sorry, you lost your air wing commander. We were just, you know, want to see what would happen. That people don't understand how absurd that is. Me as a mission planner knows that would never happen. If I were mission plan, I was a mission planner in the Air Force, but if I were a mission planner in any DOD component or any component in the government, that never happens. That does not happen. That would not happen. That happened was completely serendipitous. Yeah. I mean, that's that's one thing that I remember. Uh, I'm really glad you went into it because uh, we'd spoken about that offline and it was uh, a couple of points that I found really uh, interesting, like, you know, from your point of view, which was the the fact that this thing was able to get behind at the six o'clock position, as you call it, um, so easily. And also the fact that, that Fravor um, was... Uh, shouted I'm engaged and sounded kind of heated in that moment because obviously somebody like Fravor doesn't get heated very easily you know being (laughs) such an experienced pilot and and all the rest of it so yeah those particular points there are really significant I think well I think what he what he did I think what what happened was is it is the it didn't get behind Dave it was able to stay across from Dave so it Mm. figured out what his velocity was what his rate of turn was, and therefore what his orbit was going to be. Right. And that would be very difficult to do if you had two aircrafts. They would start to throttle up to try to get behind one another. But he's, what that aircraft was saying to Dave is, you can't get behind me. You can't do anything. I'm, I'm just, no matter what you do with your orbit, I'm going to stay right here. And then when, the, when Dave said, oh, yeah, I'm going to threaten you and rolled, you know, maybe into a 60 or 80 degree bank and came across a circle. That's when it said zip and went to the cap point. That is what is incredible uh, about what it did. It knew what that point was for however it knew that. And it zipped to that point within a couple of seconds. I don't know what the the time was uh, to go 60, 59 miles, whatever the hell it was. Mm. Yeah. Another thing that, that uh, I try and get my head around with the Tic Tac incident is Kevin Day basically witnessed objects moving in formation for days before the actual Fravor intercept. Mm-hmm. Um, and the on that particular day when they tried to actually send pilots out to one of the objects in the formation, that that was the time when obviously Fravor, you know, witnessed it doing the erratic movements and the, 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 the boiling sort of effect underneath the water and that kind of thing. So, it sort of suggests that whatever those objects were doing, moving slowly in formation, it probably had some kind of objective to it because you don't just drift along for no reason, you know, in formation. And in particular, the fact that once that was disturbed, the object that was intercepted by the jets, it broke from that formation, did a lot of evasive maneuvers, and then eventually went to the cap point and, and um, I imagine went back to the formation after leaving the cap point. Can you think of any kind of military like mission objectives that that you would fly that kind of formation, like a formation of objects, and if they are disturbed, one of the objects kind of like breaks from that and does evasive maneuvers. Is there anything that us humans do that that would have that kind of a uh, a plan? Well, in 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 formation flying, you'll hear when there's a briefing when you're doing a formation, lead will always say lead leads. And so you might go, well, what does that mean? Obviously, lead leads. And what it means is that throughout, no matter what happens, flight lead leads and they're in charge. And so if you were to get ahead of lead, 
in this formation, you need to back off because lead leads. So I'm going to assume based on just now, this is a, this is a ridiculous speculation based on human terms and military flight. So just know that ahead of time, I would assume that lead that if possibly perhaps that aircraft was lead. And when they determined that there was a threat that lead went to go and we'll call it intercept that threat, which ended up being Dave. And I'm going to ask you about the boiling water in a minute. So, cause that's going to be my question to you, even though it's your show, but, <laughs> go for uh, it, man. but, but before we get to that, I'll say that one thing that we know about the phenomenon, there's very few things that we know. Most everything we don't know. I think the government knows a little more than we do. They know more than we do, but I don't think they know everything. And I don't think any government on earth knows everything about the phenomenon and, or has quote figured it out. I think they just know more than we know. But I would say that by, in fact, if you have an object that is neither offensive or defensive, but it is in your space or in your area, and it is either keeping station with you as they did with Ryan Graves or done with some of these ships, they would fly alongside and, and what we call keep station. They are surveilling you. Why and what they're gathering, what kind of emissions, whether they're gathering electronic intelligence, visual intelligence, uh, I have no idea what they're gathering. But the only thing I've figured out about the phenomenon, the only thing is that it's gathering intelligence. I, I don't know for what reason and whether they plan to be offensive or defensive. Now, my question to you is, Frank, since you have studied this more than any human, I think, on the globe, um, <laughs> other than Lou Elizondo and ATIP, um, when, when that craft that Dave intercepted was buzzing about the water, and they said that they saw something beneath the water that was about the size of a 737 fuselage, what do you think? was happening there. What do you think that interaction was all about? I, I wish I knew, but, um, my, my kind of speculation with it is, um, first of all, I think Kevin Day had mentioned that he thought that perhaps it may have been some kind of ocean life that had been a f sort of, um, stimulated by the presence of the Tic Tac. So that kind of sounds like potentially a, a not as exciting, um, option, but actually, it is quite interesting because if there are, like, say, for example, a, um, a pod of dolphins, I think is the uh, the expression. So, if there's a pod of dolphins there, and this object zipping around above the ocean has, has stimulated them to rise to the surface and act in an unusual way, that is actually quite interesting um, in and of itself. But the other thing is uh, the the huge round object that Lou Elizondo has mentioned in the past. Uh, he, he spoke about at one time, it was on the uh, uh, Terry Verts, I believe his name mm -hmm. was, Ast yep. astro astronaut. astronaut. Um, he, he mentioned uh, on his podcast that, that there'd been a, a missile test and a, a, a large kind of like, uh, like an island, I think he said, from under the water rose up and basically sucked down a, a missile. And, and mm -hmm. maybe there is something like that under the oceans, which is kind of like the you know, the mothership, for want of a better way of, of putting it, mm -hmm. and all of the little tic-tac objects are, are attached to that in some way, you know, they're working in conjunction with that underwater object perhaps in some way. And like you say, I think um, 
uh, the the surveillance uh, you know concept is actually quite I think one of the more reasonable explanations for it because if there is another intelligence out there and they're very advanced much more advanced than us perhaps they've discovered multiple planets that have an advanced intelligence or or intelligences of various levels of advancement and what you would do in that case is probably put some kind of a base in a a location on that planet where it's not very easy to detect it like under the oceans and then you would keep tabs on what that um you know civilization is up to and monitor the defense capabilities and so on that's what america does to adversaries and you know humans we do that don't we so it kind of stands to reason that an advanced intelligence might do the same thing uh, and perhaps fly your little formations of tic tacs now and again to conduct that you know uh, reconnaissance and, and figure out what's going on so if i had to um kind of come up with a hypothesis as to what was going on there that's pretty much you know what i would say do you have any 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 thoughts of your own on that side of things well i hadn't considered even though we had josh on the show with you that day uh i didn't think about the dolphin possibility and with josh you always have to think dolphins (laughs) that's Um, a good point yeah (laughs) but i hadn't thought of that i hadn't thought about the whale hypothesis either because a whale you know you could see where a whale would look like uh the size of maybe a 737 fuselage the only counter i would have to that is they have fins on top which Mm. are distinctive and and throw shadows so on and so forth. This was broad daylight. And I would have thought that Dave and or Alex would have seen a collection of dorsal fins on top of those animals, beautiful animals, mm. or even a whale's uh, fin. So the fact uh, the bubbling aspect of it is something I, I'm not even sure those animals would be able to produce what they said looked like boiling, which makes me think that there may have been some sort of an, and plus the fact that the Navy have seen all these objects going in the water. So we've seen that. So Mm. we sort of have that now. Now the question is, is what the question in my mind is if we take, for example, if we accept that, okay, there could have been an object under there that is not of human construction and not uh, of terrestrial life. Uh, and by that, I mean a dolphin or a whale or something, some uh, sea animal. What would be happening between that tic-tac and that craft? What what possible interaction would that be? And I don't know if it's a distribution of energy source. I don't know if that was a communication, uh, a relay of intelligence and data that were gathered on that particular, and we'll call it a sortie to use another human construct um fascinating fascinating stuff that uh we may never know but boy i'm sure the navy has some really good files uh on this stuff on things coming out of the water yeah and it it just goes back to that thing again that that, uh, chris mellon was talking about in his recent article of of sensor systems and having access to those sensor systems because obviously the the air force has got extremely capable sensor systems that chris mellon talked about in quite a lot of detail and i went into it on a a podcast episode as well uh, after that article came out and you would imagine that there's probably you know sonar like underwater sensor Mm -hmm. systems as well so it may be that there is um, you know, pretty conclusive data that 
says that it's not a whale or whatever it might be, you know. So, but without all of that bigger picture sensor data, it's some, it's, you know, we are stuck with hypothesizing, aren't we? Which is fun, but at the same time, that sensor data show would be good. <laughs> well, it, it, one thing that we would ask Lou if we had him on, or you ask him if you end up getting him on, is if the subs that accompany those carrier groups were able to pick up uh, something on sonar. I don't know that they were close enough. Because I don't know what the net is. They create, you know, you with your uh, with your spy one radar, you're creating a net around that carrier group. And when something penetrates that net, uh, it could be considered a threat, depending upon what the radar operators see. Uh, those signals, um, and you know, when you start to talk about just to give people um, a scoop on radar, radar is basically a radio frequency. These are phased array radars, so there's a a pulse. These are a little bit different than your standard aircraft radar that we would have. But when that, when it hit bounces off those objects and comes back, that tells you something's there. This is not a hologram or the radar would travel right through that. So it's, mm. it's, it's reaching out, it's touching something coming back. What happens when it comes back is where we get into a million dollar radar versus a hundred million dollar radar versus a Half a billion dot whatever these spy one radars cost, and I have no idea. Kevin Day and, and those guys could tell you what it cost in their day. But what happens is those those radar uh, returns get fed into something called like an SPC, a signal processing computer. And depending upon the algorithm that that signal processing computer is, will spit out. Uh, and and display a possibility to that radar operator. Gone are the days when a radar operator would look at a scope, he would see a radar, he or she would see a radar return and say, well, based on what I'm seeing here, I think it's that. Now there is a ton of data that is coming in that when that return comes in, it gets fed into a computer and velocity and all types of things spit out so they can have a more educated guess as to what they're they're looking at if it's not already obvious. So just to let you guys know, that's what they're looking at when they see a tic-tac and what uh, basically gave Kevin PTSD. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, mean, I feel for for Kevin Day. He's obviously been pretty severely affected by it uh, for for various reasons. Um, but yeah, hopefully we'll see a little bit more of uh, that kind of thing. You know, sensor data, maybe some of the the unclassified parts of it we might start to, to to come out slowly over the next few years. Hey, we'll see how it all goes with this new UAP office. Um, but DJ, we're going to have to leave it there. Believe it or not, that's been near enough an hour. <laughs> it just feels Thank like about brother. 10 minutes, man. It's yeah. gone really fast. Yes, um, but just before we finish, can you just let the listeners know where they can find you on social media, if you can remember? Yes, sir. It is at call underscore all underscore beings. That's me. Uh, at calling beings is our show with uh, Nathan uh, at a wave soul. We have uh, at Chris Mullins, Texas is our producer. We have at Flarius underscore Kevin is our um, humorous antagonist. Uh, everybody loves Flair. And our researcher is the lovely, and I'm sure you're going you're gonna to be asked to go on her show. So get ready, Frank. Uh, that is at Study of UAPs, also known as at Deb's Data Dojo. Uh, I'm sure she's going to ask you to be on there. So thank you for letting us promo. Uh, we do try to do charity work. So like and subscribe is all we want from you and um and uh just participation and interaction we love you 
Yeah, thanks a lot, man. And I recommend everyone go and check out um, Colin Albion's really interesting podcast. What I like about what you guys do is it's such a, a broad mix of like different people's viewpoints you know you all kind of have your own specialties and they're all wildly wildly different you know perspectives on the on the ufo topic and uh i really like that because it gives that you know that that contrast of views so yeah definitely recommend everyone go and check that out and thanks again dj we'll have to do this again another thank time you, brother. it was an honor thank you UFO Thinker Podcast. Podcast.